Yes, hello there and welcome to Join Up Darts. This is an archive show, which means that I'm not here at the moment, but it's, it's all pre-recorded. But it does give you just a glimpse of what's been happening on the iTunes number one business entrepreneur show since we launched. Now, this show is different and you'll hear laughter, tears, shocking stories, real life turmoil, and of course, the kind of success blueprint that will change your life forever. If you want the dream life, then all the answers are here. Now, these are the old episodes, so to get right up to date listening to the latest stuff, then simply search Join Up Dots, click subscribe, and never miss an episode again. And of course, over at joinupdots.com, you can get instant access to our free 12-day podcasting course or loads of amazing free downloads to kickstart your own entrepreneurial journey, all made by my own fair hand. So let's get on with the show. You've got a lot of catching up to do after all. Enjoy. When we're young, we have an amazing, positive outlook about how great life is going to be. But somewhere along the line, we forget to dream and end up settling. Join Up Dots features amazing people who refuse to give up and chose to go after their dreams. This is your blueprint for greatness. So here's your host, live from the back of his garden in the UK, David Ralph. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, all the 102 countries that listen to us on a daily basis. I hope you are fine and I hope you're ready for some inspirational content because we've got a great one today. We really have. I've got a chap who's actually been booked in three times and the last two times I've had terrible internet connections and issues. So it's an absolute delight that he's hung around long enough to be on the show today. Let me introduce you to him. He's a man that from the age of five knew what he wanted to be a millionaire. But unlike many of us who have that dream, he set out on a path that led him to achieving the majority of his dreams by the age of around about 23, 24. He had the big house in Florida, the time, freedom and everything else that you've set your heart on at an early age. But what do you do when you get to that point and you kind of feel flat? What do you do when you find a process of getting there was better than the gold itself? Well, he set out to change other people's lives across the globe by teaching the world to become conscious in their actions. He believes that we all have it in us to break free from our financial restraints and gain the independence finally that we deserve by quite simply becoming conscious of our actions. But how did he come to that realisation and how did he turn his father's failing business into a success that he can now share with the world? Well, let's find out as we bring onto the show to start joining the dots of his life, the one and only JV Crumb the Third. How are you, JV? David, I am excited to be here, and I'm wonderful. I'm in Florida where it's sunshiny and the ocean is fabulous. It's just six blocks from my condo, so I'm in a wonderful mood, and it's a great day. Well, I dislike you instantly then, sir, because I'm in the United Kingdom, and it's pouring with rain all over me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'd rather be in Florida walking around. Um, I, do, I, I say this a lot because I've spent a lot of time in Florida, and um, when I speak to Floridians... Did you? Does it annoy you the amount of English that flood there on a daily basis? Do you, do you try to separate yourself from the the UK maddening crowd that come across? Well, you know, it's interesting. We didn't discuss this, but um, I happen to be in love with the English people. Uh, my parents, we, we had all these financial difficulties, but my mother had uh, was really ahead of her time, and she had a great vision for my life. So they scraped together the money for a year, and her best friend she grew up with, sister, was taking a group of kids, uh, I think there were 18 of us, to Europe for the summer 
which was kind of a big thing in America to, you know, to go to Europe for the summer, kind of like from Europe, you want to come over to the States and backpack around because it's such a big place. Mm. And so I studied at Cambridge University at the age of 16. And having come from a really small town, let's say three, 400 people, uh, so very small, uh, I have the unique pleasure that the first symphony I ever heard was in London. It was a London symphony. The first art museum I ever went to was the Louvre. I went to the Moulin Rouge, and that was, fr frankly, my first champagne and naked women. And uh, I went to Stonehenge, to, uh, to we went up to uh, three days to Edinburgh, went over to Stratford-upon-Avon, uh, to Warwick. And here I am studying at Cambridge and punting on the cam, not very well, by the way, but I didn't fall in. I was quite pleased about that. So I had that early experience and fell in love with England. So actually, I love English people. I'm really happy with it here because the accent to me is just is wildly exciting. So I love to hear the accent. Well, I think the question I need to ask is take us back to the naked ladies. No, we can't. <laughs> Well, I, 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 got every, I got all the girls to share their champagne. That was the night I found out I liked champagne. And I remember distinctly that I had nine glasses of champagne. You know, this is the guy who had never had a drink. So it was like, you know, you're, you, let the, you let the conservative family kid that your, your dad, my dad convinced my mom to sign off that I could drink in Europe. So I'd never even had a drink. I'd never been to a pub or anything. So, of course, you're a kid. You're kind of a little overdoing everything in life at that moment. And uh, I actually remember there was these gondolas uh, that, the, that the girls were in, and they were throwing out parachutes that actually dove down the table <laughs> to, to get the parachute. <laughs> but, uh, but it was an exciting night. I have to say, it kind of changed my life. I, I went back home, and I said, we don't have anything like this in Akloaha. <laughs> so it was, it was where, a lot of fun. Where you grew up, was you, you say it's about 400 500 people there's about three or 400 people literally the there was a little hardware store and the post office was a 10 by 10 area at the back of the hardware store it was rural america and every i mean nobody had any money but i grew up a block off of a four by five mile lake which is you know in florida there are lots of lakes so i grew up skiing and playing on the dock and cane pole fishing uh, so you know building little sand castles that was the life i grew up grew up in. I mean, we had to really make up. It was all about pretend because we didn't have a lot. So we would go pull some limbs together and pretend we had a helicopter. And But I think that was a great imaginative time for me. And uh, at the age of five, my parents were really intelligent. And I kept thinking, you know, they were fighting about money all the time, you know, because when you don't have any money, what do you fight about? You know, I knew when we went to the grocery store not to ask for a chocolate bar because we didn't have the money for it. And by the age of five, I just, one day I said, well, you know, this is not how I want to live. And, you know, little little kids have great imaginations and out of that comes come wonderful visions. So I said, well, what's the answer to this? And, and then, you know, it's so funny when, you, when you're small. You, you see things so clearly, right? You see them through, through child's eyes. And I said, well, I'll just grow up and be a millionaire. So I ran in the house and I told my parents, I said, I found the answer. I'm going to grow up and be a millionaire. And they, they actually told me not to tell anyone. I remember my mother shaking her finger at me. Don't say that to anybody. And when I went to write my book, I, I had to, you know, I had to ask a lot of questions about my past and go, why did that happen? And I realized we live across the street from this church. We went three times a week. And my parents, part of the reasons probably uh, was a belief system that they really had a strong belief that we had that much money who had to have done something wrong in order to get it because that was 
that to them was a great deal of money and therefore you, you had to have committed some crime or not been fair to people. So a lot of people, because I have the masters in psych, so I do also a lot of work with mindset, I have discovered that a lot of people have deep beliefs about worthiness, about deserve, about it being okay to have money, uh, that it's wrong to be wealthy, uh, and that it's somehow better, you know, the meek should inherit the earth, that it's somehow better or more spiritual, or you're a good person if you're kind of poor. And I'm here to tell you that it, that that is not my discovery at all. My discovery is that the more wealth you have, the more good you can do in the world, because the more empowered you are to go out there and make a difference with your life. Can I, can I take you back to the five-year-old JV sure. running around? And when you look back now, I know times have changed, and kids spend their time on Xboxes and Playstations. Right. It's a totally different world. A totally different world. Do you look back at those times and think to yourself, we have lost something that we shouldn't have lost? If, if we had the chance of going back, because I've got kids, and they can't entertain themselves. If, if, we, if, right. we, if we have a power cut, we just say, oh, just do something to entertain yourself make up a game or something and they just can't do you think that's something that's sad or is that just progress i think that part of it is not progress i think that we're losing part of to me part of the authenticity of being a human being and and it's that creative spirit and it actually concerns me because you you think when you come out with a book you get the demographics and you learn who's going to buy the book it's not people in their 20s for the most part because we've got this new culture that 140 characters is a novel. And I think we've lost uh, that in one way we've never been more connected and that in another way we've never been less connected because the connections are becoming less authentic and less real and we're, we're, we're distracted on the external. And I think what happened for me was that I was always kind of on this unique spiritual inner personal journey. And if I had all this distraction on the external, I don't know if that would have happened the same way. So in this regard, uh, you know, I've thought, I've certainly contemplated, wouldn't it have been nice to have grown up and you had the limousine and the mansion and all that? But on the other hand, I think in my case, I think that I wouldn't have ended up me. I wouldn't have ended up who I am and, and all the unique pieces that are authentic for, for, for my journey because coming up in the country where there really wasn't that much externally, I had to learn how to, I literally had to learn how to create. There were eight kids within three years of my age, so the question was never, who do you want to play with? The question was, do you want to play or do you not want to play? Yeah. And then at five o'clock, it would get dark, and I didn't have any siblings, so of course, everybody goes home. So from five o'clock on, I pretty much had to learn how to entertain myself. And so I would take up my building blocks and I would build things and I had my little train and it went around in a circle, but somehow it amused me for hours at a time. But I would create from the internal that I didn't have a choice. And I, I literally learned how to be very much at home with myself much earlier than I think people do today. And that's helped me because I've traveled all over the world by myself and people go, don't you feel lonely? And I go, no. You know, first of all, I'm on a journey in which I'm observing and I'm on a journey in which I'm somebody who just starts talking to the person next to me. So I never feel lonely. I'm just out there exploring and experiencing the world. But you have to be at home with yourself before you can do something like that.
because the fascinating thing, JV, in all the conversations that I've been having, and you, you mentioned building bricks there, and when you said that, I thought, yeah, I can see that totally, because what you're doing as an adult now is building something. You're building people's dreams, you're building your own financial independence, all that kind of stuff. And there seems to be a direct correlation between the passions you had as a five-year-old, a ten-year-old, whatever, and what you should be doing when you're an adult but it's that bit in the middle where you forget to dream you forget to follow your passions and you just go down the path which is expected of you and I think a lot of that nowadays is going to get worse and worse and worse because I don't think people are giving themselves a chance to dream just because of the speed of life and the speed of connectivity and the speed of text messages flying around everything is so instant we're just reactive instead of actually being visionary is that a naive point of view no, I, I think that it's accurate, and actually there's another thing going on, and I can't speak to it in the, King, the United Kingdom because I'm not quite certain what's going on there, but I imagine it's probably quite similar, is there's a whole new uh, approach that is a very big disconnect with uh, people in their 40s and 50s, or, which are most of my friends, is that uh, when, when just 20, 30 years ago, it's not that long ago, a uh, resume building meant that you went and found something and you were there for a few years to establish that you really could learn a set of skills and that you had continuity from one day to the next and that you could make commitment and that you could be loyal, all of this. And today, resume building means you do something for six months, you quit, you go do something else for six months, now you quit. And as someone who's building a new business, this is not very uh, attractive to me that I want somebody who's going to come in and in six months, it, it takes six months before somebody really begins to even know what they're doing and understand the company and really get comfortable in their own skin and then they want to leave and you've just invested and, and your whole idea as an entrepreneur is that you want to build something. So I'm looking for people who want to take a journey and they buy into the vision of how we're helping people and they want to be around at least for a few years. And I'm finding a big disconnect that, uh, and I go, no, I think this is a, 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 a very strange value that says not being committed and not having time to really learn anything in depth is great resume building. It's not great resume building. It just says that you, all you know how to do is hop around in life. And that's hard to find yourself if you're just hopping around. I've had two careers basically the first one I worked for a company for 15 years and the second one that I've just left I, I worked for 10 years and I look at my CV now and it's basically split into those two parts and when I started off back in 86 when I first um, went to work there was you know a job for life there was loyalty and they were kind of values that that were afforded to all of us and we pr prided ourselves on that but now as you're saying there's no such thing in loyalty and it almost seems a bad word it's like lack of ambition people will look at that career they will look at that resume and go well why did you stay there that long why didn't you try your hand at something else why didn't you jump every six months and it's a complete change to how it used to be well and it's also a change because i've had this conversation because in the last year i've had several people in their 20s come and go so i've learned learned a lot about this and I've had the conversation about the word opportunity, and it seems that it's how you define opportunity. For me, as an entrepreneur, and what I teach entrepreneurs is opportunities being clear about where you want to head, so I call that your true north, your purpose for your business, and there are some opportunities that are right for you and some that aren't. But when you find the opportunity that's right for you, 
you really want to go deep. You want to build deep into that opportunity. And what I'm finding today is that it's almost a reversal. And what I've had people tell me is I don't want to stay, not because they didn't like the business, but I'm cutting off my opportunities so that opportunities becomes never making commitment because something better might come along tomorrow. But that has implications for re personal relationships, business, finances. If you can't even commit to an investment path for 10 years, how do you expect it to really blossom and make you money? You can't change your investment goals every every six months, and you can't change your commit your opportunity you're exploring every six months if you really want to let that opportunity grow into something. Did you think you need to build a resume now, or do you think really, as you're saying, by becoming conscious and focusing in on your own skills, your own passion, is it now the safe choice to actually do it yourself more than building a resume which you then sort of hulk out to everyone, hopefully one of them will buy it and you'll get a job for a couple of years? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, first of all, you're talking to a guy who only works with entrepreneurs, so I don't work with uh, the employee side. And what I'm finding increasingly, especially post the 2008-2009 era, which I think shook up the world in a, in a good way, even though it was a horrible experience, because for me, it was kind of a flushing out of saying this old unconscious way where we're just going to build infinite layers of risk simply because where you have a Goldman Sachs literally betting against its own clients, right? And selling instruments that it knows in its heart are going to blow up to, to pension funds and doing that intentionally. And it's perfectly legal to do it. And then everything blows up. Well, of course it blew up. And I think that it showed us that this, what I call this old kind of unconscious path where it's just about the money and it's only about the money and anything you can do and get by with to make the money is the answer. And so I think what it shook up and I'm seeing this uh, on a daily basis in a good way, is that people are now looking for a more authentic path for themselves. And that the new, you know, obviously someone has to work for the large multinational companies. But I don't think that's an issue because people who really want to not take on the risk are going to work for a company. But what is really happening is that a lot of people are now realizing that the true financial independence is finding something they can do and have control over themselves. And I think that's at the crux of this a lack of loyalty issue is that what has happened, and it is true, that if you're on a quote-unquote career path or job path, uh, you don't have any control over your destiny. Because no matter how loyal you are, uh, political things can happen. And also, you can have these disruptions that are external even to the company or the company's management makes a bad decision. And all of a sudden, it's going to cut 100 people and you just happen to be one of those 100. So I think more and more people are taking even the solopreneur, which in a way is a, it's, it's an entrepreneur, but it's not owning a business. Let's be clear. Owning a business is something you can sell, but the solopreneur path is someone who has some skills and figures out how to make their 50 to 100,000 a year, because that's kind of typically the range of what that person's aiming for, which is a good income. They have control if they want to take their Thursdays off and go to the beach or play golf or whatever it is they like to do or go skiing, they can take their Thursday off so they have control over their destiny. I see that as coming up more and more. And the truth is, I think it's a really good path for a lot of people because now they have control and they can choose to do something that brings them joy and happiness 
because they've chosen to do something they enjoy. I think that that is the big future uh, everywhere in the in the world. The, the key word to that really struck me when you was talking then was the fact that the guy who wants fifty grand chose that. That that was it, it was almost like a mental limit that they had chosen. Is it as well, simple as that? I, it, in many ways, that oversimplifies it, but in many ways, it doesn't oversimplify it because the truth is. Uh, the, the questions we ask ourselves, because that's how it all starts. I mean, at five, I said, I'm going to be a millionaire. And the next moment I started thinking about how I was going to be a millionaire. And so in building my own business and in working with clients, it's the same thing. It's you're going, if you ask the question, how can I make $10,000? Your mind is going to start generating answers. That's how our minds work. If you ask the question, how am I going to make $100,000, your mind's going to start generating a different set of answers. They're about how you make 100. And if you go, well, how do I make a million dollars this year? Your mind's going to start chunking and thinking about different answers. And the truth is, when you go through your day, you're going to see different opportunities. All of a sudden, you're starting to think in different chunks and going, wow, where's that opportunity that could bring in a half million? Now you're looking at your environment and every person you meet differently because you're looking at the relationship differently and going, oh, this person's doing this, and I might be able to do this and help them, and there might be a joint venture out of that or an affiliate relationship, or this is a client that might be able to bring me $100,000, but if you're thinking about where's $10,000, you're never going to see the $100,000 client. So in many ways, it is the questions we ask ourselves and how big we're willing to think. And here's the, here's the fun part of it all. It doesn't take your mind any more work to answer the million-dollar question than the 10000 and it really doesn't take any more actions because there, there are only so many hours in the day. You're just going to be doing different actions. So the bigger that you can create and allow yourself to ask yourself questions and a bigger vision, the bigger the results you're going to create. And in many ways, it's that strong of a direct correlation. There's these human self-limiting thoughts that we all have and right. through these conversations my i still have limiting thoughts i can't sort of shake them they're, they're we all have limiting thoughts because what was an empowering thought yesterday as we expand today becomes a new ceiling and yesterday it was our floor yeah yeah and so it's, you know it's just how how it works it's like i'm starting a non-profit we're doing our first global conscious world it's called conscious world foundation and so we're reaching out and in fact anybody listening to this can get a hold of us uh you'll learn how to get a hold of us at the end uh and you could even get a hold of us at conscious millionaire and we're looking for youth 16 to 25 who are doing projects that uplift humanity but i'm starting small where i'm only looking for 20 30 people uh maybe five or so are outside the United States because it's easier to just look in Florida where I'm at. There are a lot of youth here. But my, my vision is to be in 160 countries in 10 years so I know where I want to go. So I'm asking questions about creating the model. Just because I'm starting small, I'm creating a model that can scale and be in 160 countries touching youth and helping them have uh, what I call the triple win view of you others in society winning together so they learn a different view of success it's not win-lose it's everybody wins and the world's better off in the process and it comes from collaboration it's a very simple model and it's it's self-proving whenever we collaborate with one another 
if you win and I win, we're going to both win bigger. It's just the way it works. It, it isn't like you win less because the other person won. You actually win more because the other person won. So everybody's better off. I want youth all over the world to grow up and be leaders that see the world in those answers because I look out 100 years from now and I go at the end of the century, we can't, I don't find it acceptable that a third of the world would still have no water or no food or no medical care on a daily basis because that becomes self-proving that if instead they were empowered and they weren't worried about if they were dying tomorrow, but instead they were contributing to the world like you and I can contribute because we actually don't have to worry about those things. How much better off would the whole world be? It would be an amazing world if everybody could be productive and contribute on a daily basis to the world and everybody else's lives being better, their lives would be better. I agree with, I agree with you totally. And one of the things that's been coming out of many of the conversations um, I've been having is the fact that when people have shaken off those self-limiting thoughts and dreamed big, they're actually finding the bigger the dreams, the easier they are because there's less competition for them. Less people are willing to believe that they can do these things. And so you it, just kind of sell through. That's a very interesting, interesting point. And I, I think about it all the time, frankly, because when I start with clients, I say, first of all, the very fact you want to do something with your life, just you just separated you from 80% of the people. You know, because I find on a daily basis having to drive around, I have to remind myself I'm going somewhere when I get in a car. I'm not meandering. I have a destination and I'd like to get there. But the truth is most people are not aware of it. They're not conscious of the fact that they don't have any direction for their life. They don't have any where do I want to be in 10 years. Therefore, any action today is just about as good as any other action. And th when you start going forward and wanting to accomplish something, very quickly, you can get in the 5% who really want to rock and roll and do something with their life. And what's even more amazing is that as you begin to move in there, you start resonating in that way. And all of a sudden, you start having a group of relationships and friends and people that you meet at conferences or, or the coffee shop or the pub. All of a sudden, you start meeting a different person because you're resonating in that way and you're thinking in that way. And that in of itself makes it easier because... I'm, I'm at the, this moment looking out and constantly going, okay, I now have a group of friends that, you know, they're looking at their seven and eight figure incomes and they're all good people who want to use a good portion of that money just to help the world become better. But those are the kind of people I resonate with because that's how I think on a daily basis. Fascinating, isn't it? And I was interested, you, you said 80% don't take action, 5% rock and roll. So what about the right. sort of 15% in, in between? What, what are they doing? Well, I think that that's, the that's really the process of the group that are becoming awake, what I call awakening, that they're waking up and becoming more conscious. I mean, let me just give this to your audience right now. One of the things in my book that it's all built on is this formula of conscious focused action. So the conscious part is there are a lot of pieces to becoming conscious, but the main one is what's that specific result you want to be at, let's say, in 30 days. I like to bring it real short because it makes it much more real. So what is that and who do you need on your team to get there because you're going to need some skills from someone else? And what are your options for getting there? It's just starting that simply and then looking in your environment and being aware and then only taking actions that are focused. So it's focused actions, conscious focused actions to get you to that result. And just by following something that precise, 
you can accomplish any goal that you want. And you'll accomplish it much faster because you get rid of everything that's a distraction and you know where you're headed because you've taken the conscious time to do it. And when I'm with audiences, I'll, I'll ask, well, who thinks is the most, the most important part of this formula, the conscious, the focus, or the action? What I find is inevitably most of the audience will say action because they've all been told they're supposed to take massive action. And I'll go, no, actually, I think 80% of it is the conscious because most people never take enough time to figure out where they want to go or to have any plan for getting there. And if you don't do that, then the action doesn't matter because you could be going in the wrong direction completely. Be- because so many people in life, they're in jobs they don't like, they're in relationships right. they don't like, but they're unwilling to leave from there because they have this kind and of... that's about deserve and worthy. Yeah, that's, that's right. They have a mental fear, don't they, that the next thing's going to be even worse than they've got. So, so they're just put up with what they've got. And they haven't... That's part of the conscious part, again, is getting conscious of the fact that you deserve the highest standard. You deserve the highest quality life. You deserve somebody who loves and embraces you for who you are, not that someone who, to be blunt, bitches at you or complains about you or worse, abuses you in subtle or not so subtle ways, mentally, emotionally, or physically. You don't deserve any of that. And the moment you wake up and say, I deserve different, but you know what? The the path to getting there is always the same. You have to first look in the mirror and, and treat yourself the way you want other people to treat you because they're going to treat you the same way you're treating yourself and most of that's not conscious most of it's unconscious so it it starts with how you see yourself and how you take care of you and that changes your relationships and who you want to be with let let me play you a little excerpt this this isn't the steve Jobs speech we're going to do it in a little while but this is something that jim carrey said recently and i haven't told you i was going to play this i just want you to have a listen and, and and get your vibe on it have a listen to this My father could have been a great comedian, but he didn't believe that that was possible for him. And so he made a conservative choice. Instead, he got a safe job as an accountant. And when I was 12 years old, he was let go from that safe job. And our family had to do whatever we could to survive. I learned many great lessons from my father, not the least of which was that you can fail at what you don't want. So you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. That's pretty spot on to your life, isn't it? It, it, it is, and, um, and that, that actually uh, relates to, to, to uh, I was thinking about when you were playing that, uh, and especially because of L.A., I actually did my first graduate degree in Los Angeles, and uh, about two months ago, I was out in Los Angeles, so I looked up the apartment that I lived in, and it was a dump then, and it's still a dump. It's about three blocks away from Grauman's Chinese Theater, which was a real grungy area, it was a, a small little studio apartment, and I can still see it right now. It had orange shag carpet. It was really horrible. Uh, it was 160 a month, and I literally, for a solid year, ate on $5 a week. And uh, it made me very disciplined. I can assure you that. I knew exactly how to eat on $5 a week. And I had the cheapest car in America by $100, only because it was the cheapest car in America. So it was the cheapest payment. And I used to go drive because, remember, I was the little boy who grew up and he was going to be a millionaire, right? So that was this driving internal part of me. So I used to go driving in Beverly Hills. It was about 10 miles away and looking at these huge mansions and dreaming that this is really what I wanted. And one day I came up to a four-way stop sign and it was, so, it was, like, it was, it was like out of a movie because here I am in this yellow Datsun B210. They don't even make Datsuns anymore. 
And uh, so just think this yellow, bright yellow car, small. And I'm at the stop sign, and here comes a Rolls Royce and stops. And here comes across from me a Rolls Royce and stops. And here to the left of me comes a Rolls Royce and stops. And it's me and my little yellow Datsun B210 and these three beautiful gleaming, you know, Rolls Royces. And I wanted to crawl under my seat. I was so, but the other part of me looked at him and I said, I'm supposed to be in that car. I'm not supposed to be in this car. I'm in the wrong car. And within three years, I had my Mercedes, which was the first great car that I had, and my beautiful home on the water, because I knew that I was in the wrong car. And I believed it strongly. I'm in the wrong car. I'm supposed to be in a car like that. And that was part of, of claiming the life that I wanted, that I wanted a different lifestyle. And I wanted everything that that represented. I wanted to be able to go to the nice restaurant, not be eating 12. Literally, I went up. There were a lot of Mexican uh, people in Los Angeles. And I went up to the Mexican women saved my life. I went up to all of them in the grocery store. And I go, will you teach me how to, how to cook Mexican food? Because I knew it did, the food, didn't, the ingredients didn't cost much. And I would literally soak my beans for 48 hours that were dried beans so they'd get super big. And I made 12 big burritos and my own sauces and everything every week and ate 12 burritos a week. And that's how I got through that, that 12 months of $5 a week for food. Did you think you could go back? Because you seem somebody who hasn't lost his core essence. I think, it, you know, if you went back to your five-year-old self when you was making up your games on the beach and everything was poor, do you think if you lost everything now, you would actually be able to survive? You, you'd be quite happy with it. You could understand that, you know, this is how the majority of people live their life. Well, yeah, an interesting thing happened. Uh, when I sold uh, companies, because I built these companies and then I wanted to go on and do my own thing. So I sold them in 97, which took convincing my father because at that point I owned 50% of them and um, sold them. Then I got involved in the stock market and I was doing really well, but I got over leveraged. And then we had this little thing called 2011 and I had to sell out and I lost, um, I lost the bigger part of my cash portion of what I had. Thank God I had a lot of real estate. So um, I had two years where... I had income coming in, but I, I, I had to uh, lease an apartment because I'd sold my house, so I lost that money. I had to lease an apartment, and it was in Denver, so I leased a nice apartment, but it left me literally with a budget of $150 for the entire year for entertainment. And I said, well, I, I sat in that apartment figuring out what I was going to do next, and I was profoundly unhappy, but I said, you know, when you... I, and I coined a phrase, being a broke millionaire. And this is such a thing. I didn't have the cash flow. I had the net worth on the balance sheet. But I had, I, I had uh, lost so much cash. So I had to sit there and figure it out again from a different perspective. And in that perspective, having the balance sheet didn't matter because I didn't have the cash each month to live the way I wanted to live. And I never thought I would have that experience again. Uh, given everything that I had accomplished. And it really brought me home to what was most important and taught me. And I said to myself, I'm really kind of, you know, depressed over this, which I was. And then I said to myself, when you're able to be happy without having the cash flow you've gotten so used to, because at some point you're just used to being able to buy whatever you want to buy because you've gotten yourself in that position. And all of a sudden I couldn't do that. And I said, when you're able to be happy with this, you're going to be happy forever. 
because you're going to be at a whole nother stage of your own evolution. And that's exactly what happened is that I learned to be happy with that. Then, of course, I went on to make a whole lot more than I had before because that's the way the thing really works. It's a roller coaster, but if you're, if you're in a positive flow to the whole thing, you keep going up. It's just it's not straight up. And, and I found my happiness in a deeper part of who I am. And I really think that goes back to how I grew up because when I was in Los Angeles after three months, this was a city at that time that had 8 million people. Now it has 16, but I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference. It's a lot of people. And I realized after three months that this was a very uh, superficial place, that everybody was about having more and having the better body and having the better car. And, you know, this is what the place was about. And I said to myself at the end of three months, I said, I can play this game, but they could never play my game. And by that, I meant I grew up in a, this little town, and I was always very entrepreneurial. I was selling stuff when I was four years old. I was always trying to figure out how to make some money. And I took the family lawnmower, and I went around, and I had the only lawn mowing business in town. I don't know, but I was the only guy going around mowing people's, you know, there were a lot of older people, and so I would mow people's lawn and get paid for it. But if somebody was sick, I would just go mow their lawn for free because that was the kind of values I was taught. And so what I meant when I said they couldn't come play my game is that nobody stole from everybody, from anybody. Everybody was really real and authentic. We were just human beings on our journey. And so I grew up learning these very strong core values about having honesty, about being integrity, about respecting other people, about we're all here to help one another. Because when you're in a little town and everybody's kind of poor, everybody helps one another. You know, and on the other hand, the joke in the town was that everybody knew what everybody ate for dinner because it's just, you know, when it's a really small place, yeah. it really is like everybody knows what you had for dinner. Um, but I got a great core set of values out of that that have stayed with me and that I think are the very essence of what I, what I am as a human being because both of my parents, it was like a family motto, I'm surprised they didn't paint it on the wall. Every day, it seemed to me every day, and it probably was almost every day, my parents, even when I'm four, I'm five, I'm six, would look at me and say, the world should be better off because you were here. And both of them were very involved in civic activities and giving back and being, you know, being of value to other people. And they both modeled that extremely well for me. And I think that's why I have Conscious Millionaire Institute. It's why I want to awaken people and I want to help a million people become conscious millionaires. And I have this nonprofit to help youth all over the world because I see the value of us having a world where everybody starts to, to resonate with this idea that success is everybody winning and that for everybody to win, everybody's got to take personal responsibility. There's no such thing as entitlement in that, in that kind of world. It's a world in which everybody's living at their highest place and they're being their most productive and they're living with joy and authenticity because they're on the path that's right for them. Now, that may sound a little, you know, Pollyanna, but let's be honest with ourselves. Which world would you rather work to create? The world that we currently have, when that's not going on, are a world where every person listening to this gets up in the morning and does something that brings them joy and makes them happy because it's authentic for them. And guess what? The products and services that they help other people get because of whatever they're doing, whether it's working for someone or having their own business or helping those people's lives, which world do you want to live in? I want to live in the second world, so I want to take my life and contribute and do everything I can on a daily basis to help us have that world and to wake people up to realize that each of us can contribute to that world 
simply by living the life that we're here to live. It's not, it's not a surprise that you're a success because obviously you're conscious and I can understand exactly how that works. But also you've got passion, you've got fire in your belly. And the last thing is, it seems from even the early stages, you had hustle muscle, didn't you? You have been somebody that would would hustle with the best of them. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of funny because my first business, and I looked back and I didn't know I was an entrepreneur. I didn't have any interest in being an entrepreneur growing up. That's the funny part because my dad was never making any money. So I actually associated owning a business with being broke because that was my experience of it. I, w- I went to college to go to med school and then just ended up, I took my pre-med and decided I didn't want to do that and and ended up taking over the family business at 23, turning it around. I'd never had a business course. It was not what I planned to do. And after six months, I said, well, good gosh, I'm kind of good at this, you know, uh, seem, seems like something I ought to be doing, but it was never my intention to be an entrepreneur, not at all. But then you talk about looking back and and seeing life and connecting dots and all of this is that I realized, my gosh, I was an entrepreneur from the age of four. My parents that year gave me, you know, it's like every little kid has the thing they want. I wanted a pup tent, right? We're out in the country. I wanted a pup tent. So I got a pup tent and we had, and my grandmother lived with us, uh, which was fabulous. Not having any brothers and sisters, it was great having this grandmother. So there was somebody else around and we'd pop popcorn, you know, do things together. We were were just best of friends. She was a wonderful person. I call her an angel because she was. And we had this tangerine tree. So we saved up egg cartons. I mean, this is how basic it was. And grandmother would help me, and we would squeeze the tangerines. And I'd squeeze them into the little egg cartons. You know nobody's going to drink this stuff. But I squeezed it in there because of my little boy way of looking at life. This was my container. And then I set up my pub tent where the high school kids got off the bus because I knew they had some money. And it may not sound like a lot of money, but in 1960, 10 cents, uh, when I got my allowance at 8, it was all of 10 cents. So 10 cents was actually some money. And I sold them my, my egg carton full of tangerine juice that I'm quite certain they threw away. I don't think they went and drank it. But, they, you know, they bought my tangerine juice. And then at five, I ordered from a magazine some cards. I remember they were $1.25, and I got to keep 50 cents. And I ran around, and I sold these cards to all the little old women in town. And that worked. So the next year, I ordered candles, and they were $1.25, and I got to keep 50 cents. So I went around, and I sold at Christmas. I sold these beautiful little candles with glitter on them and everything to all the older women in town because now I'm kind of getting my crowd and then dad uh, farmed and we had a hundred acres of peanuts. Now I don't know that this is a Great Britain kind of thing but in Florida it's a southern kind of thing. You boil the peanuts with salt and you have boiled peanuts. So my dad helped me at age seven, eight to boil the peanuts and I went around for a dime a bag and I would go all over town selling my boiled peanuts every day in the summer to make money. And then the next year I learned how to mow the lawn. And so I said, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a lawn contract. So I did. One was $5, which was a lot of money. It was this little apartment complex with four apartments and I trimmed their heads. I did a great job, but I was out there making money. I was, I was always trying to figure out, go, if I'd had the internet, I, I do wonder sometimes, what would I have done with the power of the internet? I mean, to me, Kids have so much they can do. You could you could be a millionaire at sixteen or seventeen or eighteen because you could start a little business on on the internet because the power of the internet is so amazing. 
I'm speaking to a chap next week called Warren Castle Jr. And uh, he's a 15-year-old entrepreneur and flies around in his own helicopter and he's got a portfolio and stuff. And it just blows my mind because I, I don't think I've got that in me now to be honest, and at the age of 15, these, these guys are hustling with the best of them. Well, we've never, that's the great thing about people who are now considering being entrepreneurs. We've never had a greater time to become an entrepreneur because there's so much opportunity and there's so many ways to mine those opportunities. You know, you and I can be doing, you've got a podcast that's in 110, 102 com- countries. You know, think about 15 years ago, this wouldn't even have been possible. Mm. You know, so the possibilities just are, that is the really great thing to me of the time that we're living in, is that the possibilities uh, and the opportunities have never been so great. The barriers have never been so lower. So, so now that we've lowered the, the barriers for so many things, it's really about creativity and innovation and the fire in your belly. Those are the people who are going to be successful. Well, let's play you the words of somebody who was astonishingly successful. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but he has left his mark on the world. And this is the words of Steve Jobs that he said back in 2005 to a bunch of um, students just leaving Stanford University. And I'd really like to get your flavor on these words and what these words actually mean to you. So this is Steve Jobs. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path, and that will make all the difference. Is that what it's all about, JV? I, I think actually it is, because when you were playing it, uh, what came up is my personal motto and how that motto evolved for me and how that motto now, now absolutely guides my entire life. And it's only three words. Uh, and the motto is trust perfect timing. When I started looking back uh, a few years ago and going, well, what's my life really been about? I realized that in a larger point, uh, that not in a religious way, but in a very deep, uh, connected way, that my life's always been a very deep spiritual journey. That it's always been a journey of growing and yearning and wanting to find uh, the path that was right. And that what I learned along the way was that all of my steps come from being authentic with myself. Whenever I'm being authentic and real, whatever occurs um, seems to always be right. And I started learning to be in the flow and being in the zone And out of that came an awareness that, wait a minute, everything, when I'm in authenticity, everything that needs to happen in my life, in my finances, in my business, everything happens because I'm on this path. So what that's brought me to is, and it's actually on my refrigerator because you know every day you're going to your refrigerator. So I taped up Trust Perfect Timing and many times I'll look at that, especially if I had kind of a rough day and I'll smile and kind of laugh and I go, yeah. It's what gets me through because I know that there is, is, for lack of a better word, it's almost as if my life is guided. That when I listen to that authentic part in my heart, I always know what to do. And what's amazing is when I'm in that place, no matter where I go, I always see opportunity and I always meet people and great things 
happen in my life on a daily basis from trusting the perfect timing that there's, and I want to be clear, I'm very specific in my mind about what that means. What it appears to me from looking at my own life is that there's always been perfect timing, and every time I'm authentic, I, I tap into it, but that the perfect timing was always going on. It's just whether I'm aligned with that perfect timing or not. And so it's the alignment with that perfect timing doesn't always bring me the things that my ego mind wanted, but it always seems to bring me the things that my soul journey needs. And that that's really what this life is about. It's about taking a more soulful journey and being of service. And that in that process, my life actually turns out the way it's quote unquote supposed to. That's how it appears to me. And I get the growth that I need. It's just sometimes that growth wasn't what I would have consciously chosen, but my by being authentic, I chose consciously to be on the path that would take me through it. So so you're actually being conscious about what's in you. You're you're conscious about your passions, your authentic path, and you're becoming more aware of gut and intuition and everything that Steve Jobs was saying in that speech. Well, yes, because, and actually that's what happened, I call it my first big intuition was not to go to medical school. And from age five, when I decided I was going to be a millionaire, I was very interested in science. And I decided I was going to be a doctor. I never wanted to be the fireman or the, you know, the policeman or, you know, any of those things. Uh, I always wanted to be a doctor and I did all these science projects in high school and would go to these science fairs and things and uh, went to college to go to med school. And after a year and a half of taking almost all the pre-med courses, I realized I had a day in which it just became clear to me that this wasn't really what was right for me. And, and the way it became clear was that I was gifted with a mind that could go read any book and take a test. But when I went to chemistry lab and I went to physics lab because I love numbers, they made tons of sense. Okay, I got that. But when I went to biology lab, I could get through it but I didn't intuitively feel it. And that happened so many times that there was finally a day that I went, how can this be the right career path for me? How can this be what I'm supposed to do when I don't feel it inside of me? And I have to go to the library to draw the pictures of the cancer cells because when I look in the microscope, somehow I don't exactly see how they're different. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. I'm going, I can't treat patients like this. This won't work. And I made the decision I wasn't going to med school. And so I called it my first big intuitive decision. I've never regretted it. And yet I've always been happy that I have that scientific background because it actually it makes, it makes it easy for me to read scientific you know, articles and kind of a basic understanding of what's going on. But, but far more so, I love marketing. Marketing just intrigues me. And marketing is, the, marketing is tracking numbers. Marketing is testing and it's testing exactly the same way we did in chemistry and physics lab. You know, you do an experiment, you, you broadcast a message, let's say, you look at your numbers and you go, let's change the subject line and see what happens then. Let's change this one word and see what happens here. Let's change, we're doing a lot of Facebook ads and we're, being very, we're getting 50 to 70% conversions on our lead gens right now. So that's fascinating to me. It's like, let's change the color uh, one of the colors on the the image we're using, and let's A B split that test that. All of that comes out of my scientific background because that's all the process of laboratory science, and I'm able to apply it to business and marketing. So I'm really glad that I have that. And it turned out that I was very interested in holistic 
an alternative medicine. So had I become a doctor, I would have ended up spending all my time doing things that were non-traditional because I've now wandered into that path of a more holistic approach to medicine. And I personally avoid pharmaceuticals every, you know, these are not a normal part of my life unless they're absolutely necessary. And I take a more holistic approach to how you proactively create healing in your body. And that to me is far more interesting. So I ended up with it having application, but it probably was the wrong path. Uh, just because I was going to end up on this alternative medical world anyway. You call it intuition. We call it the big dot. And in join up dots, everyone seems to have a dot where their life changes. And sometimes it's by a terrible accident in the family that they think, oh, I wish I had never gone through that. But thank God I did because I've ended up here. Other people, it's just that gut intuition. But all of us, if we are becoming more aware and more conscious, we are going to hit those dots, aren't we? And we're going to hit that moment when we will have a choice. And it's either, either do the leap of faith or go back into the, the sort of mud and the settlement that we was already in. Well, I, and I think most of my major decisions in life, interestingly, were turns on a dime, and they came from having a profound sense of that dot, as you're calling it, that authenticity, that moment of profound intuition. Uh, an example was I was back visiting my dad in 2005, and because I'd sold the companies in and now was beginning to coach people and beginning the beginning stages of Conscious Millionaire. And I came back, I was out in California. So came back, was came back to Florida, 3,000 miles across the coast. And I stayed with my dad for six months and he had Parkinson's. He was, um, I guess, uh, 84, 85 at the time. And so I'd be answering the phone and of course, being the third, so I have the same name, they'd go, you know, is this Jim Crumb? That's why my father would go and use Jim. and. And I had that intuition, I should just say yes, because it'd be like the phone company electrical. And it turned out he wasn't paying his bills. And he had plenty of money. But the Parkinson's was beginning to have uh, the effect on his mind that's a little bit like Alzheimer's. And so when he put down a bill, that was it. Done. It was just never paid. And it was Christmas, it was Christmas night, not Christmas Eve, Christmas night. I was in the living room, and it was about one in the morning. And I was planning to just leave in about a month and go back and live in California at that point. So I had decided to live about 10 miles outside of San Francisco in a place uh, that had great views. And I lay there on the sofa and I just started crying. And I realized that my father was dying, that it, it hit me. My father really is dying. And at this point, my father had become my best friend. I went to bed, I woke up, and I cried so profoundly for a solid hour, I thought I would die. I couldn't stop crying because I felt the pain of it so deeply. And I immediately knew that I wasn't going back to California, that I was actually going to go get my things and move and come here uh, where my father was because he wasn't going to be able to make it without me because he wasn't going to be able to pay the bills. He wasn't going to be able to make good decisions. People were going to be able to take advantage of him and that I needed to be there. And I knew in a moment, and I had lunch with my dad, and he knew how much I wanted to live in California, and I'd been living in Colorado, so I, I loved that part of the country. And I said, Dad, I've made a decision that I'm going to move back here. And he was, he was immediately happy, but he goes, are you really sure you want to do that? And I go, yeah, I really want to be, you know, so that we can have time together, and I really want to be here. That was one of those decision points. And I said to myself then, if you had asked me 24 hours before, I had a little conversation with myself and kind of laughed. I said, I would have sworn up and down. I would have said, there's no way 
I'm going back to California. You know, that's where I'm going to be. But in that moment of just profound insight, I knew that I was supposed to come back, that that was really the right thing for my journey. And I also had learned enough at that point to know that even though I had mapped out what was going to happen in the next year of my life, that everything that would then happen was supposed to happen and that it would actually happen from being where I was near my dad. And it did because it deepened the relationship with my father. Then when he, at the end, he was 90 years old, he had a stroke. I, I literally shut down the business. I spent, I talked to the doctors immediately. They said that most people are uncomfortable with death. I'm profoundly comfortable with death. Um, and I'm frequently called into friends or family when they're going through the dying process because I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, I understand from my perspective, it's just a transition. It's, it's nothing is actually ending. It's just a transition on this greater journey that we're taking. That's my perspective. And so I kind of very, very good with it. And I said, I want the doctor says that no sugar coating. I have to make a lot of decisions. Tell me what's going to happen. And they said, your dad's going to live for three to four months. And uh, he died two days short of four months. I shut down everything. I was with my dad that whole time. Had I not been here, had I been in a different place with my life all going and a staff of, 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 you know, in a business out in California, this might have been very difficult. It might have been more like I flew back and saw him a couple of times. But we had all that time together and every day we would talk about things uh, that otherwise we wouldn't have talked about. And remember the day I brought him some pictures of mom and I wanted to talk about his relationship. You know, I knew how they met and then I knew they got married and I didn't really know anything else. And when you've had a stroke, I don't know if you've been around anybody who has a stroke, but you kind of start leaving out all the words. You just end up with the essential words, and it might be a sentence that would – a paragraph that becomes three words, right? Right, right, okay. So I asked my dad – I said, well, Dad, why did you – why did he asked her to marry him. And now my father – see, to understand, my father was 28 or 30, so this was rather old at that point in time. Uh, not to be married, but my father was uh, quite good looking and let's just say that he had a different lady every every week and had no problem with that and was having a good time. And so that's the backdrop and he meets my mom who had, I guess had got him snookered so to say and uh, asked her, ask her to marry him uh, three months after they met and I didn't know that and I'm like sitting there in shock. I'm like coming, my gosh, my dad's mantra about women when I was growing up. He goes, son, I would never ask a woman out on Monday because I might meet somebody I'd rather ask out by Friday. <laughs> and I go, okay. Uh, and, and so I got, I got what my dad's life is like. I got it. And so I asked my dad, I said, why did you marry mom? And she looks at me and he goes, smart and good looking. <laughs> and I said to myself, my God, I guess that really is the answer. If you're smart and good looking, it kind of takes care of a whole lot of other problems. I, I think uh, that's spot on, isn't it? Yeah, I said, my God, it's brilliant. You know, he met the woman who was smart and good looking and, you know, thinks she'd make a good mother of her, you know, because he told me that another time I thought she'd be a good mother of my children. And, um, but, but that was the profound answer, smart and good looking. And she was smart and she was good looking. And I, I said, well, it's undeniable. Okay. So, Four months later, they were married. We would not have had those times. I treasure those times, and I'll treasure those times to the, my last breath, that we had all that together. And I not made the authentic decision and really listened to myself and said, even though you think you want to be in California and you love California, you belong here, and actually acted on it, none of that would have happened. 
thank you so much for sharing that story with us that was really sort of heartfelt and I, I, I want to do something now which we do at the end of each of the shows JV and that's when we give you the opportunity to share your wisdom with your younger self and this is the part we call the sermon on the mic and when I play the music you're going to be transported back in time to your younger self and if you could have a one on one with your younger JV what kind of advice would you give them bear in mind where you are now in your own personal experience and knowledge so this is the sermon on the mic here we go with the best bit of the show the sermon on the mic the sermon on the mic I, I would have resolved everything that we're talking about is the resolved me today. And so I listen to my authenticity and I listen to that wisdom and I act on it on, on a daily basis. And I think I went through a long period where I was not acting on my authenticity. And that was after I made the, the, the first money. And, you know, I had the beautiful home and the Mercedes and I could go to Europe and I, and I had a great life and all of that was by 25. Then I went to law school and I really wanted to, to practice law. And I felt an obligation to take care of my dad because he wasn't particularly uh, the best business person. He was a good entrepreneur. He knew where the money was, but he wasn't really good at it. And I gave up the next 12 years of my life to stay in a business that I now no longer wanted to be at. And I would have resolved that in a different way so that I didn't give up my life. I would have figured out a way to help my father without giving up my life. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate now about telling people to truly make the decisions that are authentic for you. Because I didn't make the contribution in the world that I'm now making. I could have made it a lot earlier. And I wish that I had been more authentic with myself rather than miserable and taking a situation that had created the first wealth and I'd learned a lot about business, but then that 12 years really produced nothing because I hated every day of it uh, because I wanted to be out doing other things and I wanted to be doing seminars and I wanted to be helping people in their personal growth and I wasn't doing that. So I would have found a way to be true to myself and instead I wasn't true to myself and that's the piece I regret and I would have learned to do that earlier. Deep words indeed. JV, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you. How, how can people connect with you if they um, are inspired, which they obviously will be, about your content today? Well, actually, I'd like to give them a portion of my book. It came out in March. It's a bestseller, Conscious Millionaire, Grow Your Business by Making a Difference. I'd like to give them a portion of that, a couple of chapters out of that. So if they'll come to ConsciousMillionaire.com, we've set up a special page just for listeners to this podcast it's join up dots. So consciousmillionaire.com forward slash join up dots. And you can get part of the book and just download it, become part of the community. We do free webinars on a regular basis. And I would love for you to come join us and be part of a group of people who genuinely are building their wealth by making a difference in the world and doing what brings them joy and happiness and fulfillment. We'll have all the links to that on the show notes. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I've actually read the book in its entirety. And I particularly like the little bits at the end as tasks at the end of each chapters. And there's one of those kind of, I don't know, barcode things where you can sort of get onto a web page and different things. That's all like, it takes the book into different areas. 
and they can watch videos on every chapter that tells them exactly how to put that material into action and start getting results in their life and their business. Yes, hugely powerful. Well, thank you so much, JV, for spending time with us today, joining up those dots of your life. And please come back again when you have more dots to join up, because I do believe that by joining up the dots and connecting our past is the best way to build our futures. JV, thank you so much. Uh, You're a great host, and this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the questions and having the opportunity to just share. David doesn't want you to become a faded version of the brilliant self you were once to become. So he's... Thanks for listening to today's episode of Join Up Dots, brought to you exclusively by podcastersmastery.com. The only resource that shows you how to create a show build an income, and still have time for the life that you love. Check out podcastersmastery.com now. David doesn't want you to become a faded version of the brilliant self you were once to become. So he's put together an amazing guide for you called the eight pieces of advice that every successful entrepreneur practices, including the two that changed his life. Head over to joinupdots.com to download this amazing guide for free, and we'll see you tomorrow on Join Up Dots.